in order not to be lonely, I needed my friends. And I was, to a certain extent, making them lonely by neglecting them and, and behaving as though each individual relationship didn't matter. And um, I think what I've learned more than anything during the pandemic is that I have to connect with those people that I care about because I'm helping them by doing that, not just helping me. So I actually have a post-it note on my um, computer, both my computers, saying, um, call your friends. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Welcome to Connected Leadership Gold. I'm Andy Lapata. We're taking a break from the regular programming for August and we're going to share with you some of the jewels from the Connected Leadership Podcast archive. There have been so many great guests over the last two or three years that we want to make sure you don't miss out. So enjoy this jewel from the archive and I'll be back again on the 4th of September. Welcome back to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. I'm joined this week by Rebecca Seal. Rebecca is a journalist uh, well known for her work with The Guardian and The Observer, mainly on food, but covering a range of different lifestyle uh, topics as well. She's an author uh, of a number of cookbooks, including uh, a number of Leon cookbooks uh, and a television presenter. She's uh, been on Sunday Brunch on Channel 4 many times. And her most recent book is on a topic that's very pertinent to listeners of this podcast, both the uh, the solopreneurs uh, amongst you who uh, are working for yourself or freelancing and working from home, but also never the intended audience when the book was first devised, but certainly a relevant audience now. People who have been forced by the pandemic out of the office and have had to learn to adapt to work from home. The book is called Solo, How to Work Alone and Not Lose Your Mind. And once I came across the work and I came across Rebecca, I thought it'd be great to get her on the podcast to really explore some of the lessons that she's learned in writing the book and that she shares in what is an excellent read. I started out by asking Rebecca why she wrote the book in the first place. Well, so the idea came about, um, it's actually nearly seven years ago now, um, because I was really struggling with my own solo work. I was really lonely. Um, I was really overwhelmed. I was probably very close to burnout. I was um, not seeing friends, not seeing family, working six or seven days a week. And, and although from the outside, it would have looked really sort of glossy and successful, um, on the inside, I was really unhappy. And so I went looking for something to try and help me through that. Um, and at the time, there weren't that many resources available for people going through what I was going through. There was a certain amount of information about, you know, how to set yourself up as a small business and that kind of thing. But I just wasn't really finding much that talked about the coping side and the psychological difficulties that there would be um, with kind of just being by yourself so much when you work on your own. And um, so after a while, I started to think, oh, I maybe have to write this book, <laughs> which um, at the time, given I had far too much work on as it was, wasn't wasn't really a realisation I particularly wanted to have. And um, that's why it took quite a long time to get to the point of actually writing it. Um, so I got the book deal in 2019 and wrote most of it during that year and then finished it in the first lockdown, wrote the, wrote the last chapters then. Um, and that was a weird experience in and of itself and not really what I was expecting. So as you said in the introduction, it was very much intended that it would be a book for a few freelancers, some remote workers. You know, it, we never thought it was going to be a book that sold loads of copies. All we, all we really hoped for was that, I mean, my agent, this is, was that it would be, you know, useful um, for people going through what I was going through and that it would sell a few, maybe a few hundred copies a year, maybe a few thousand if we were really lucky. And, um, and I was really happy with that. <laughs> What what is it about you know certain types of people you and you and uh, me included in this where when we when we have a problem finding something we think well I'll write a book about that <laughs> rather than the normal I know. we're not normal people it's an are we strategy. <laughs> yeah. it's not <laughs> I mean I guess it's the journalist in me I mm. I just I knew I knew the information was out there and I would come across bits and pieces of it on my kind of quest to try and fill the blanks in for myself. And I'd sort of bookmark it or store it away. And 
and it just got to the point where I thought I'm actually this is my job I'm actually good at synthesizing complex yeah. information I'm trained to do that um, and making it into kind of digestible bits and pieces for people to read and enjoy so that's sort of how it, it came to the point where I thought I'm, uh, I'm gonna have to write this but yeah it's not an ideal strategy for dealing with a difficult thing I don't think Really. <laughs> but, that, but I mean, I, I joke about it. It can be very rewarding as well. And, you know, I've oh, had yeah. it in my experience and I'm sure you have as well. Uh, and it's taken you into a whole new sphere. And, and I mean, what we have, I think, in common between our two books, you've talked about it. It's the, it's the um, mental challenge um, in your case of um, solitude uh, when you work yeah. from home. And I think that as I touched on in the introduction, you know, I, I've... I've actually worked from home for must be, I would imagine, 17, 18 years now. Um, when I was in a company, I just I couldn't cope with with the disruption, the distractions of working in an office. Um, mm. So I spent most of my time working from home then anyway. Um, so for me, I enjoy it. And I, you know, because I, I, I've been involved with networks and, and and I have a lot of meetings and I speak at a lot of events, I get my fill of connection. But for many people, they don't have that balance. I mean, I haven't for the last year. Um, I, I think that the difference this year for you know, many of us have chosen to work from home, I think is what I'm trying to say. Now people are being forced into it. What, what mm. Can you talk a bit more about that impact of solitude on, on, uh, on mental health and how people can get around that, what focus they need to bring to it? Yeah, so um, the choice thing is really important because it turns out there's not a huge amount of study on solitude and its impact on the brain. Um, there's some, but it's not as widely studied as I assumed it would have been. But what we do know for sure is that choice is huge when it comes to our experience of solitude. So if it's imposed upon you, then it can feel like a much darker space than if it's yeah. a choice. And that I think is entirely what you and I would have experienced. Like I really enjoyed working from home before all of this i'd just like to say that my office is really quiet normally but there's like <laughs> eight children just gathered outside the window and my upstairs neighbor has just started drilling like this is a cul-de-sac there's no nobody ever walks down here and there's just like a gang of kids having pictures taken just outside the window so sorry about that um, but but these are the challenges we face you know we we, we you know i was saying to yeah. you beforehand that you know i have neighbors with kids and yeah. you don't get that in an office, but we no. we learn to adapt and we learn to understand. Yeah, yeah. and it's a, it's a different kind of distraction. Um, they're very yeah. cute, so it's fine. <laughs> um, anyway, so so choice when it comes to solitude is really um, is really critical. And feeling like it's not a choice and feeling like it's been imposed upon us is often what makes our experience of it shade towards loneliness. Um, and our perception at the same time of how isolated we are is also very influential. So you can be very, very physically isolated and not feel lonely because you don't perceive yourself as isolated um, socially. And at the same time, we all know that you can feel lonely in a crowd or lonely at a party. So it, it, it's perception, which is critical when it comes to how we feel about loneliness um, and solitude. And so the interesting thing is that if you can kind of play with your mindset which is quite hard to do, but not impossible. If you can play with your mindset when it comes to your experience of solitude, then you can kind of tinker with your with your emotional response to it. And one of the ways that it's quite valuable to do that is to think about what, what is good about solitude for you. So for me, I'm completely committed to never going back to working in a traditional office because the amount that I can get done when I'm by myself and in a much shorter period of time is quite radically different to how things were in an office um and obviously there's all the great stuff about being in control of where i work and you know the hours that i do who i work for all of that stuff but more than that i think for me the key thing about solitude which makes me want more of it and not not to escape it is that it's a it's a creative opportunity like i find creativity when i'm by myself so much easier um than I did when I worked in an office I have so many more ideas and I can collaborate creatively with people too because of all these digital tools that we've got um and so I kind of embrace it like I see it as a real opportunity for me to to make new things and to to do to do good work but then more 
than anything to finish that work, <laughs> leave my desk and go and get on with the rest of my life, which I consider to be the far more important yeah. thing about me and the far more important part of my life than, than my working life is. I think that that's something that comes through strongly in the book. Uh, and, and also I I worked hard to create in my own working life and that's the, the, the boundaries. Uh, and yeah. you talk in the book about training yourself not to look at your emails first thing in the morning and, and so forth. Um, can you just talk to that a little bit in terms of, you know, if you suddenly find yourself um, moving from an office environment into this solo working from home environment, how do you create those boundaries for yourself? Because there's research and I, I can't remember if I've heard it in the news recently or if it's in the book or if it's both. They're saying, actually, we're we're doing more work um, working from home than we do in offices. Yeah. I think that's been in the news quite recently as well. It has. <clears throat> yeah, it has. Um, so there's data of various sorts. Some digital tracking data suggests that we're doing two hours extra work a day, remote, mm. newly remote workers are anyway. Um, there's other data that says that it's, you know, an hour extra or it, it, it's a lot anyway. And, and I would say that that's reflected in interviews that I've done for work um, subsequent to the book. I interviewed quite a lot of um, newly remote workers last year and their common refrain was that they hadn't taken any time off, that they were working longer days than they would normally do. One guy I spoke to, we worked out between us that he'd worked, this was September um, last year, that he'd worked an extra 20 days unpaid um, in comparison to his normal working life, which I was really saddened by and sort of yeah. made very made him assure me very firmly that he would take some time off as soon as possible. Um, so that's so it's it's a huge problem and and one of the issues for newly remote workers is that um, they've lost their transitional rituals, which is something that I try and get people to institute in their lives, whether they're long term solo workers or or newly solo. Um, and a transitional ritual would have been the commute for a lot of people. And that it serves a really useful purpose for all that we might not enjoy being squashed like a sardine on a train somewhere um, or sitting on a bus or whatever it might have been. Um, it served a purpose because it helps our brains move from the kind of home mode into a work mode. And without those transitional rituals, it's really hard for us to kind of begin the day with focus and kind of intention. Um, so, but there are things that you can do to kind of recreate them. And um, I don't mean walking around the block, although actually that is quite a useful thing to do to go for a work or walk first thing. Um, but you can do lots of other stuff. Like for me, I have two cups of coffee after the second one, decaf as it happens. But um, <laughs> after the second one, that's time for, um, for me to start work. Like it's just a little ritual moment. Um, I listen to particular things on the radio. If it gets as far as woman's hour, which starts at 10 a.m., then I know I'm, I'm overstepping, I'm late. Um, and, you know, so we can set down markers of our own. I know some people who burn candles um, that they only burn when they're working. Um, other people who have, um, you know, specific clothes that they wear. I personally always wear makeup. Um, not because I particularly want or need it, but just, although I do, um, but just because it, it serves a really useful function in terms of saying to my brain, you're now entering a work state of mind and work has primacy right now. Um, and and it, you deserve that, you're owed it, the work is owed it. And when it finishes, it's done. Um, and transitioning out of work mode is also really useful, almost more useful than transitioning in. So if you're working from home and you don't really have a dedicated workspace, um, then you can put everything in a box at the end of the day. That's a really, really helpful thing to do is just hide it all away, put it on a shelf, close the, um, close the, um, close the door of a cupboard on it all, uh, put a sheet over it if you're working in your bedroom. Um, and you, you literally don't have any other space and symbolically cover it up like a parrot, you know, at night to stop it getting on your nerves. You, you've got to do things which kind of symbolically allow your day to end. Disable Slack, you know, turn off the notifications on your phone for everything, whatever it may be. There's a whole raft of things that we can choose and you'll know what they are for you and the work that you do specifically that say, right, it's 6.30, it's 7, it's 8, whatever time it might be. Um, that is done and I'm going to move into a different time. Um, and trying to f sort of 
use space in a similar way. So trying not to do your work in the same spaces that you do your living in. And that can be really simple. I know someone who's had huge success just sitting in a different seat at the dining table to the one that she would normally eat at. Um, that that's really helped her to kind of feel as though she's in a slightly different space and time and and frame of mind than she than she was when she was sitting in the same spot. So you know, it's it's hard, like it's hard working from home and it's really hard working from home if you don't have a dedicated space with a door that you can close. And I worked yeah. at the kitchen table for two years with a baby at my feet, so I know, <laughs> I know how hard it is. Um, so, but there are things we can do that can kind of tweak our mindsets and help us through this really quite difficult phase. A lot of that resonates with me. You know, I it's been harder in the winter because partly because of a back injury and partly because of the dreadful weather and the, 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 the dark mornings and nights. But I try and do a commute in the morning and a commute in the evening, which is a 30 mm. to 45 minute walk, an hour walk uh, that demarcates the day um, yeah. for me. And what I noticed when I injured my back late last year, I couldn't sit at my desk. I, I was in so much pain and I had to work from the sofa and I found it so much harder to be productive. So that dedicated yeah. space, you know, just being in my lounge rather than my office made a huge difference. So that's key. Now, the focus of the podcast is professional relationships, although, I, you know, if we've got an interesting topic, I'll let it flow. Um, but, but I think in terms of what you're talking about and you cover it in the book, personal relationships come into this as well. So... Oh, yeah. When you're talking about working from home and, and demarcating the right space for work versus home life, your your personal relationships, your, your family come into that as well. And you had that conversation with your partner, didn't you, when you both mm. started being in that space. And in fact, you you tried working in the same office and that didn't work. And, and you, you came up with a list of rules. So can you just share sort of how you how you approach that together? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing that happened was that two weeks after we started working in the same room together, um, Steve told me I had to stop talking constantly because I was so used to going from a, a newsroom where everybody was like, bah, 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 idea, 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 you know, like just so chatty. And um, I just took that into the space that we were sharing. And he's a photographer who was used to real quiet so that he could kind of get his head down and do his post-production work. And then I sort of crashed into his space all babbly. So that was challenging. Um, and then the thing that, that happened subsequently was that we both got to a point where we were working too hard and work was too kind of um, too front and center in our in our lives. And we weren't getting any of the good things in the rest of life and not enough sleep and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So we decided that we would make some rules, which we stick to even now. This was like eight years ago, probably, um, where we don't talk about work before breakfast. We don't talk about work after 8.30 p.m., um, we don't talk about work or do work at the weekends. Um, and that just those sort of simple rules have been really, really helpful. We, you can break them, but you have to kind of do it with permission. We call it playing a card. I don't really know where that came from, but, um, so you can once a month, you can work at the weekend and once a week, if you have to, you can work in, in the, the evenings, but that doesn't ever happen really. I mean, it's super rare, like a couple of times a year probably, because it just gives you um, that sort of circuit break before you make a, a poor decision because you have to justify it, not just to yourself, but to someone else. So there's like in, an external accountability thing going on. Um, we've also had to work really hard not to become colleagues. That was one of the reasons why we needed to kind of um, put a limit on our work conversations because at that point we were working together as well I'm as you say a food writer and I write cookbooks and he's a food photographer so he does the photography for my cookbooks um I think we've done like nine together now um and we were also at that point I was writing a column for the evening standard which was about restaurants and he would photograph all the restaurants every week as well so it was like constant talking about work and you, you you know lie in bed and literally say did you get the asparagus for tomorrow's shoot and did you do you know and that that is fast route to divorce as far as <laughs> as far as I'm concerned so that relationship had to be managed really really carefully and I think um I think I'm only just beginning to learn now about how um how crucial it is that we think really carefully when we work from home about the relationships that we have not not just with our partners if we have them but with our you know with our friends with our parents with our children um because forcing a lot of functions to happen in one small space is really has a huge impact on all the other people who might use those spaces 
and on your sort of mental bandwidth as a human as well. Um, and so I think we have to pay attention to that stuff in a way that we may not have appreciated that we need to before. And I think I was beginning to grasp that when I wrote the book, but I think I'm, I'm more, I'm understanding it more and more now that we have had a year of this kind of weird experience that we're all going through. Yeah, I, I think, by the way, that um, playing your card will come from It's a Knockout and various other games where you get a trump card. Yeah. Uh, I, that you could get double your but points. why we or... started saying it, I have no idea. It's just like such a random thing. <laughs> Steve must have more of an 80s memory bank than you. You're far too young. Uh, no, no, I'm not, but thanks very much. <laughs> comes from my childhood. Andy's new book, Just Ask, Why Seeking Support is Your Greatest Strength, is out now. Looking at the importance of asking for help and admitting vulnerability, it is an essential read in challenging times. Order your copy from Amazon and all good book retailers now, or visit andylapata.com forward slash just ask. Let's move along from uh, personal relationships to to the professional relationship side. And in the book, there's a couple of things I want to look at here. So let's start by in the book, you talk about the importance of communities for solo workers. Now, if you're in an office you, you and you've mentioned the newsroom with the chatter around you, you have a community built in for you to tap into. And you know, I haven't worked in a big office for over 20 years now. Um, and to be honest, I don't miss it that much, but I've replaced a lot of that in other communities. What I do miss, I think, is Friday evenings after work at the pub and Friday lunchtimes at the pub and in some jobs, Monday lunchtime, Tuesday <laughs> lunchtime and so on as well. Journalism, journalism. Uh, yes. In journalism, <laughs> I'm sure as well. Um, but I think... That, as a solo worker for so long and then someone who works in small offices, that is something that, that has definitely been lacking from my life. Um, how do you replace those communities as a solo worker? Let's talk about in non-pandemic times, first of all. We can touch on pandemic after, but you know, you wrote this book without the pandemic in mind. So how does a solo worker generally replace those communities? Oh, to, to speak as though it was not a pandemic, how lovely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, it, in hindsight, it feels really easy now to say all the things that you could do because, um, because uh, you know, back then they felt quite hard, but yeah. but now they feel like, you know, things that we would all rush madly towards being able to do. So so I think, you know, there's a number of things that, that we need to do. Firstly, we need to take responsibility, right, for saying that, we have to build our own communities. And if we don't have one, then we have to find one um, and that we need one. And um, just doing what I did six or seven years ago and kind of ruining the fact that I didn't have a good community and just feeling sad about it isn't enough. It, it's, it's really hard when you're lonely to reach out for people, but that is the only way through it. So we all, we all have to do that. And I know how hard it is because I had to really struggle. Um, one thing we can do is think about the ways in which we are connected, the, the existing connections that we have. So I like to help people to think about the way that their solo work isn't really solo. It's slightly it's like irony to the title, but none of us are actually working in complete isolation. And we all, we're all connected, you know, via our clients. We have colleagues of a sort, you know, for me, it's it's other writers, it's publicists, it's um, press officers, it's my agent, it's um, you know the, the the editors that I write for and all of those people but it's also the the people who facilitate what I do and allow me to do what I do and allow my husband to do what he does too which you know that that includes the people who clean our studio the people who clean our house the um the the people who do my hair when I go on television um the you know these huge networks the people who look after our kids all of whom are individually really really important people to us and really valued um and and a part of this kind of invisible community this network i mean it, it's not invisible but you know i mean it's not the same as when you go into an office but but it does exist we are enveloped in this community um and you can strengthen the relationships within that and it's important i think that we do that as much as we possibly can um but we can only do that if we recognize that it, it exists already so you can kind of ex well, i was going to say exploit that's a slightly negative word but you can kind of make more of the the existing connections that you have and then you can also seek out connections so um i think one of the things that the that the pandemic has made quite um 
uh, relevant is sort of networking organizations and kind of mentoring and buddying opportunities. Um, I think people are kind of more open to engaging with that stuff at the moment because there are so few other options. Um, but I, for example, have been mentoring a, graduate, a journalism graduate over the last few months to try and help her get into work. Um, she just, you know, she just asked me, she just emailed me and we happened to go to the same university, but like, oh, sorry, just hit my microphone. Um, but, you know, like 20 years apart. So we don't have any kind of common ground in that sense. Um, and I'm, yeah, I really, I really hope I'm being useful for her, but we have to ask, we have to just keep asking. We have to say like, can I, can I, maybe not in such open words, but you know, can I, um, can I have a relationship with you? Can I deepen the relationship that I already have? Can I help you with this? Can you help me with that? Um, and, and kind of weave these threads around ourselves to help us stop feeling kind of lonely and isolated. I literally just used the title of your book in what I was saying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just ask and, and don't, um, you know, don't wait for people to come to you. You know, one of the things mm. that I that really came out for me in writing Just Ask, well, I tell the story in it of when I made the commitment to ask for help uh, or, or to be more honest about what was happening in my business. Uh, I bumped into a, a speaking buddy of mine uh in a private members club in london and he said how's business and, and actually i said well actually it's not that great at the moment and he was oh my god i didn't know what's happening and, and i told him i got two referrals from him in the next two weeks and he had never referred me before and mm. i i told i mentioned this to him a couple of years later and he said i said you'd never referred me before and suddenly there were two and he said well i never thought you needed it yeah and so when we when we refrain from asking people and, and taking the um uh you know it's being proactive in the way we we we're taking the initiative is the phrase i was looking for uh when we're reticent about taking the initiative and we hope other people will everyone's wrapped up in their own world it doesn't mean they don't want to be there for you or have a deeper relationship with you or or share more with you but sometimes you've got to be proactive about it yeah yeah I totally agree you have to you have to engage with it and I and I as I said earlier it's so hard to do when you feel kind of crushed by mm. your position it's it's so hard and and we're kind of you know society sort of socio-culturally um taught to make as though everything's fine and social media doesn't help with that as well you know the lesson that we get over and over again is that we should show off the best bits and hide all the bad bits but what i've been quite amazed by in in publicizing the book is that the bit that people seem to connect with over and over again is the bit where i talk about how bad it was and how lonely i was and how um how things looked great from the outside but were terrible on the inside and people have I don't know, they've just really taken that. And I get messages a lot from people saying that they feel really sort of validated and really seen to know that other people are having that experience. And that that was kind of a by the by for me. I did it because I felt like I needed to explain why I was writing the book. I didn't do it because I wanted to try and validate other people's experiences, but I'm incredibly glad that I kind of accidentally did that. Yeah, it makes such a difference to people to know that they're not alone because when we're struggling with something like that we feel like we're a loser we feel like we're there's something yeah. wrong with us and when yeah. we find that actually it's quite common and people we yeah. admire and look up to struggle with it you know something I talk about as well um it makes a huge difference yeah I felt so much guilt sorry just to say one last thing about this yeah. like I felt so much guilt for not feeling for not enjoying what I had um that I, I, it was that was quite paralyzing. I felt so ashamed that I wasn't able to kind of dredge happiness up from somewhere when, you know, by lots of metrics, things were going well. And I had, you know, I had enough money and I had somewhere to live and I had work and I'm freelance and I had work at all. That was quite miraculous, you know, all of that. Um, and yeah, I just, I found that a very painful experience that I, that was why I didn't want to share it really. I just felt so ashamed. Well, well, let me ask you this then, having been through that and having that awareness now, have you been back in that position and have you handled it differently or do you think you would next time it came along? I haven't been in that position again. Uh, no, I think that's for a number of reasons, partly because of what I've learned in the book. 
um, partly because I've got a deeper understanding, I think, of, of, of what preventing your own loneliness prevents other people's loneliness. And that's like a lovely virtuous circle. So um, I have this thing that I do. I've, I wrote about it in the book. You, you might have got to that bit about um, writing 10 things down. Um, in the present tense every day, which um, so I call it the present tense present tense present tense journal, um, where I write down ten things that if they were true, then my life in ten years' time would look how I want it to look. Mm. Um, and one of the things I write is I make time for my friends uh, because that six years ago period, I just didn't I just didn't make time for them, and I didn't understand, and it's so obvious, and yet I didn't get it that I had to in order not to be lonely, I needed my friends. And I was to a certain extent making them lonely by neglecting them and, and behaving as though each individual relationship didn't matter. And um, I think what I've learned more than anything during the pandemic is that I have to connect with those people that I care about because I'm helping them by doing that. I'm not just helping me. So I actually have a post-it note on my um, computer, both my computers saying, um, call your friends. And, and one of the things I write in my 10 things is that I make time for my friends. And I remind, so I remind myself every day that that's something that I want to be true in my life. Um, and that, that's, that's really useful. So no, I haven't been back there yet. <laughs> <laughs> but that's incredibly powerful. Um, you know, this, this take, take care of your own loneliness and then you'll be taking care of other people's, I think, is it's not something you hear said, um, but there's a very powerful message in there. Um, I, I, you know, when when I'm promoting the podcasts, when they come out, I, I'm putting little quotes out and so on. And I think you've just given me my quote uh, <laughs> for <great>. this episode. <laughs> um, so you, you touched on technology and there are a couple of quotes in the book that really jumped out. Talking of, of, of notable quotes that, that really <laughs> jumped out at me. So I just want to repeat those and then have a look at how we, we balance our use of technology. Because, you know, I, I'm a great believer that... And, and, you know, you work in the media. I think the media uh, tends to take a line and drive with it. You know, what will sell papers? You know, the, the old classic about Fleet Street, if it bleeds, it leads. Let's find the <laughs> the negative and, 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 and focus in on it. And I don't think it's that simple. Um, and I think that social media does a lot to keep us, you know, going back to your, your point you just made, I talk about social media keeping us insight in mind. Um, and maintaining relationships over distance and over time when it's not possible to see each other face to face, particularly times like now. But there's obviously big downsides as well, particularly social perfectionism that you touched on earlier. So these two quotes, you said technology can lead to greater isolation if it stops us getting out and being and being around real people. Um, yeah. And then you asked a question, has social media made us socially obese? gorged on constant connection but never properly nourished uh, which i think is a wonderful uh, way of putting it so how well, do i have to give credit from? credit where it's due that was a quote by michael harris who wrote a brilliant ah, book right. about you, so, um. <laughs> but isn't it a wonderful way of of putting it, it? but how, how do we get that balance right so we get the the connection and support that it offers without becoming over dependent on it I mean, I think the thing that we have to remember about social media is that it's not actually free. Um, there is, there is a, we're paying a price. There is a cost that is inherent to it. So for all its benefits and for all that, you know, freelancers and solo workers like me rely on it heavily to market our businesses and our, our brands and our, you know, whatever. Our, I don't like the idea that I've got a brand, but whatever it is that I do that I have to put that on social media and, you know, links to the stuff that I've written and all that. It's, and it's really valuable. Um, but it's not free. And the price is A, that it can be highly addictive and B, that it can do terrible things to our ideas of self-worth and self-esteem. And I, I don't know if I've got an answer about how that balance works because I struggle with this every day. I struggle to not use my technology as much as I did the previous day. <laughs> um, and, you know, we all know that it was built to be addictive. It was built to keep us on for as long as possible. But what I don't know is is quite so well known is that it can make us feel really bad. So social comparison through social media is a really, really insidious and dangerous thing. And 
almost regardless of what you're following, our brains can find a way to make it make us feel bad about our own lives. And one of the pieces of research I came across when I was writing the book, which I found really fascinating, was that um, even if you're following somebody you consider to be aspirational and fitness influencers were particularly used in this research, you think you're following somebody who's going to help motivate you to do great things with your life. But actually, you're following somebody who makes you feel worse about either your life or your body or both. So it's a it's a it's a trick that was never intended to be played on us but nonetheless it is it is a trick which is being played on us and and that's why i think we have to remember that it's not none of this comes for free um in as regards to whether we're socially obese i do think that that's true michael harris his book is really brilliant um called called solitude and um it's about his attempt to try and um navigate whether it was possible to ever even experience solitude in the modern era. Um, and his argument was that, yeah, that, that social communications and kind of digital communications as a whole were like empty calories flying around um, and that we weren't getting the deep personal connections that we really needed. So, so while I agree with you that, you know, we are in sight and in mind when we're on social media um, and that can be really, really useful, particularly now, um, I do think that we can lack the deep social connection to nourish us I, I really do I worry about that a lot and I, I worry about what it means for the next sort of generation of kids who are growing up without any notion that, you know I'm old enough to have not had a phone when I was a teenager um, and I'm you know old enough not to have had a computer at home uh, so you know it's different for me I can I can imagine that I can remember that but um yeah, I worry because because these tiny little bits of information that we get, these little blurts, these little sets of words that we, you know, the WhatsApps and the and the Snapchats and the whatever it might be, are not they're not enough. They help in terms of connecting us, but they're not enough. That's not what we're built for, and we're not we're not built to look at each other on screens. We're not built for two dimensional communications. Like we've had no time to catch up with the radical changes that have happened in digital communications. Are, are from an evolutionary point of view, we haven't even caught up with print. Like we couldn't even deal with the level of data that we were getting before the internet and before the computer. Yeah. Like our brains were simply not able to handle the amount of information that washes over us every day, even before the digital world. Now we are overwhelmed in the most profound sense. And it's no surprise that forming deep connections with people over a screen, you know, whether it's words or pictures, just it just doesn't work. We need real people. There's, there's so much there that, that resonates. And, I, you know, while I am an advocate for social media, in a lot of ways, I'd love to do a detox myself. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I, and, you know, we're talking about your book, but there's so, as I said to you when we first spoke, there's so much overlap between the two. Yeah. And I interviewed my niece, who was 21 at the time, for Just Ask. And um, she's an undergraduate. Uh, she was in her first year and she was uh, working with some of her, her fellow students on a project about was her generation the loneliest generation uh, and there was a lot of interesting research that they'd conducted about that and that they, they, they'd explored about that that topic and one of the things she said to me was that her generation has got used by commun to communicating by messaging and yeah. they don't know how to hold a real conversation and, yeah. and she said one of the things is that when I, when I'm speaking to you there's no backspacing there's no correcting something if you're not quite happy with it. And they're used to sort of correcting things before it's sent. Yeah. And that impacts real communication and, and, and using an emoji instead of words and things like this. Yeah. So there is a real problem there. I, I think, as I say, I, I don't think it's black and white. I think there are shades of grey, but there are real problems uh, that we need to face. Yeah. And, and things like that, they get, they kind of become intrinsic parts of our brains in a really weird mm. way have you ever stood yeah. in front of a bookcase and wished and tried to use a search function like have the like have real <laughs> books in front of you well, i've done that like it, i work on a mac so it's apple f for yeah. me and i've i've literally had the impulse to apple f real <laughs> things and i don't think i'm alone in having that experience that we kind of overlay our digital culture on top of our real lives and yeah. you know what your niece is saying is the same she's got she feels like she ought to be able to delete part of a conversation i feel like i ought to be able to digitally search a real book like it's you know and one day we probably will be able to and that'll be awful but um <laughs> but, v VR you know 
but these are the risks these are the risks yeah. that we that we stop thinking in the kind of natural lateral ways that we yeah. always have done I, I'm I'm grateful as a single guy that I haven't got to the point of swiping someone's face if I like them uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be the natural danger an extension of what you're saying um yeah yeah, uh, there was one other thing. I, there's one more question I want to ask you. In fact, there's a lot more questions I want to ask you, but I'm aware Please, of the time. Just, it's well, it's I try and keep this to a certain time, and it has absolutely flown. Um, there is one more question, but there was something else I wanted to pick up on in your um, answer about the social uh, media world as well, because we're seeing it again. You talked about the time investment and the addiction. Uh, na addictive mm. nature of social I'm seeing it now with Clubhouse which is the big new app uh, and mm. you know I've, I've had a debate on Facebook <laughs> ironically today because I saw a blog about Clubhouse I'm on Clubhouse I've hosted a room I, I've been in a couple but I've I've kept away from it because I, I, I've been in and people have said to me they've been in rooms that have been going for seven hours and people are spending their whole evening their whole day on Clubhouse I know some people who have businesses where Clubhouse is a natural fit and they are investing five or six hours a day in it, but they have staff and teams and they're doing it strategically. But I know there's a lot more people who are just, they found somewhere where there's a community, where there's company. I think it introduces easy prevarication into the workflow. Feel like you're doing something. I'm marketing mm. myself, but you're just listening into conversations and chatting. And I just think Clubhouse, I don't know if you've, explored it yet but i think there's a real danger have, yeah. in clubhouse yeah i think so too and i mean i think i think it's a really interesting one because i think social audio is going to become a massive thing it's mm. not going to be the only place where you can do it yeah. i think there's twitter spaces isn't there um and there's various other things that are coming along which are going to kind of fold into that sort of social audio side of things i think it's really interesting that it's launched <clears throat> at this particular moment when people are craving actual conversations. Yeah. And I think there'll be some really, really interesting research to be done on what the impact of it is as a, as a non-visual medium in terms of loneliness and connectivity and whether people do feel sort of strong senses of community because because that it's because it's audio and there isn't the opportunity to delete, <laughs> go back and kind of polish and hone and people will make kind of spoken mistakes and it will be a bit more real. Um, I haven't yet quite understood its sort of uh, allure, let's say. Um, but I think that might be because I haven't quite worked out exactly how to use it. So I haven't been in any rooms yet where I thought, oh, I really want to stay here. I keep yeah. dropping into things and thinking, huh. <laughs> you didn't come into so... the room I hosted, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. I just, I've only been on it for about four days, so yeah. it's really new. Um, but I just, yeah, I just think, again, we have to remember that this stuff that appears to be free isn't. And yeah. there will be a cost. There will be a price. Even if there are loads of positives that come out of it, there will be negatives. And we have to be kind of eyes open to them in a way that I don't think we have been about other social media platforms as they emerged. It's taken quite a long time for us to see the darker sides of Facebook and Twitter. And I think, for example, um, and I think hopefully that because we know more about that, we'll be a little bit less likely to go, oh, it's new, it must be lovely, <laughs> um, like we did, you know, in the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's 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 clubhouse guides. Uh, I, I seem to be seeing uh, how to use clubhouse guides from every other person in my network at the moment. So well, please send me one. <laughs> sure. Well, actually, I'll, I'll introduce you to the person who I would recommend you talk to, uh, who, okay. who, who I, 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 I think has got a lot of credibility in this space. And uh, OK, fine. One, so I'll, I'll send you that. Um, OK, so last question. I can't I can't have. Um, a food writer, not critic, um, and foodie on as a foodie myself, uh, and not ask you about food. So yeah, let's let's keep it on theme. Um, let's talk about the role of food in building relationships. I think you know, obviously, we're 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 thinking non-pandemic times to a large degree again. But you know, what where do you think food comes in in terms of uh, you know the the, the classic um, phrase about breaking bread with someone? you know, in terms of really getting to know them and meeting them at their level. Um, historically, it's played a huge role. Is this something you've you've looked at or, or you've got thoughts about? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, so three of the cookbooks that I've written are about places. So I go to places and collect recipes mm. from people who live there. So I've written a book about Istanbul. I've written a book about the Greek islands and I've written a book about Lisbon. So um, and they, they were extraordinary experiences to do. I'm so kind of grateful that I had that opportunity because that I, I see food. And I think this is why I write about it. I see food as a way into a culture it's a very neat way of understanding how a culture operates and what's important within it and what isn't. And um, and I'm also really fascinated by food history. So I do a series of articles for National Geographic Traveller um, food section uh, about the history of dishes. So I, I've looked at green curry, for example, and ceviche and um, uh, ratatouille um, and things like that. So, and they're brilliant because you get to kind of... Um, pull on the threads that have trailed back all the way through history um, and discover things like, you know, the original version of Ratatouille was a really rubbish soup that was given to soldiers in France in the mid um, 1800s. And um, it was called Rata and it was really, they, they really hated it because it just was like water with some boiled bits of stuff in it that was very unpleasant. And, and, and tracing that, sort of over a hundred years until it became this kind of rather cheechy thing in the kind of sixties and seventies, um, that in, in the UK that people would serve, like what, what, what an amazing, um, opportunity to tell that story. Like I loved doing that. So, so I think food is absolutely fundamental to the making of relationships and, and the, and the maintenance of them as well. Like for me, it is an act of it's an act of love to cook for somebody, and it's an act of self care to cook for myself. And um, one of the things that I'm constantly banging on about on Instagram at the moment is how we have to take a lunch break and make a nice lunch for ourselves, even if we're completely by ourselves and working from home, um, because that's an act of that's an act of self love, um, and a really and really important one to to do. But um, but yeah, I mean, I just can't wait to get back to cooking for people. I just can't wait. To cook for people who aren't just my husband and my really ungrateful children who only want to eat fish fingers <laughs> and have no interest in any of the interesting things that I could cook. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I could go on and on about this, but f- food is—it's cultural glue, isn't it? It's how it's how Actually. we express so many things, um, even the bits of food that we think of as poor. You know, the the crisps or the pork scratchings or the you know, the, the reheated pies on the side of the motorway, they say something about who we are as a culture and what we value. Um, and from a sort of anthropological point of view that you can't escape that you're, you're leaving a kind of, um, like a, a, a breadcrumb trail behind you of, of who you are, um, through the way that you eat and the way that you cook and what you feel about food. I love that. And I love the, the connection of, um, food with places when, whenever I, I travel to speak very often. I've brought back a cookbook um, mm. from the places I visited, and it's a lovely way to connect that cuisine with that trip and that event and those people in my mind. Um, and and we have our first comment, uh, so we are live. Uh, Virginie, who said, "I did a lot of cooking all this year. It helped me a lot for self care." Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. know, for me, I, I'll cook. Um, uh, weekends particularly when I try not to work trying mm. to, to be creative and cook and do something different I mentioned to you earlier that I made you know this lovely uh, um, aubergine katsu curry uh, last night I mean my, my kitchen now is splattered with katsu curry I really shouldn't <laughs> use a stick blender but it was it, it was great and it was a great way to connect with people and it's just an escape because and I think there's something about this in your book when I'm cooking I'm not thinking about doing anything else and exactly. it's that real yeah. switch off. You know, even when I walk, I'm listening to a podcast. Um, when mm. I'm cooking, the music's on and I'm cooking and I'm focused on that. And I've even tried yeah. making a few phone calls while I cook and I can't really do it. But I, yeah. I just grind to yeah. a halt with the cooking because I can't multitask to that degree. I, I'm it's also hugely part, restorative. Yeah. It's like yeah. it, it does this thing where because you disengage from from work and all your other concerns, you're you're a different part of your brain is operating, and they, those other parts of you are kind of um, recharging and recuperating. Um, and it, to a certain extent, it's considered like deep play, like highly highly engaging, physically and mentally engaging. And like you say, it's very difficult to do something else at the same time. So yeah, it's a really profoundly positive thing to do to cook. 
um, for so many different reasons. And then you wind up with something great to eat at the end of it. It's like win-win. <laughs> win-win, definitely. And and just to finish up on that point, you know, you mentioned the connection with places. I'm part of a group uh, called Latitudinal Cuisine. And um, we meet at different people's houses and there's a theme around a country and everyone cooks a dish related to that country oh, or that lovely. part of the world and we work our way around the world obviously not at the moment sadly but it's it's such a nice way to explore different cuisines but also to connect with people uh, and, and at a different level and I went to one and actually the person who hosted it had invited a number of her friends as well and no one else from the main group went so it was me as the complete stranger with this group of close friends but it was an uh, it was an indian or subcontinental cuisine and they were all from um the subcontinent so for them it was very they all made the dishes they were used to and it was so interesting for me to meet them and experience that um so it does bring people together which is what it's all about yeah it does it does i mean yeah i heard a lovely thing a business anthropologist um on the forbes website the other day um she was talking about how to collaborate effectively when you're in a remote team and how to create an an office culture when you haven't got an office to go to and she said that one of the things she was doing with her team was recipe of the day so one person in the team each day would have um, would be the person who chose a recipe and they would kind of do photographs of it and kind of talk about why it was an important recipe to them. And she said that actually it had deepened the connection within the team because they have people who, it was a very diverse team as it happened. And so people were using recipes from their family cookbooks and um, and they were learning a lot more about each other and what their family histories were and where they'd come from. And I, I just thought that sounded like a really, really lovely um, way of kind of team building but very very gentle and soft and without any kind of um, awkward weird behavior which <laughs> <But> just <laughs> something nice that people do every day anyway yeah. so it was like no pressure thank you so much to Rebecca for her time there were so many questions I didn't get round to asking um, the book uh, solo contains brilliant ideas a lot of thought-provoking content uh, it's not just a how-to guide Uh, There's a lot that makes you think and makes you analyse the way you're doing things at the moment. And um, I've made some changes, certainly, as a result of reading the book. So I would recommend it whether you are a freelancer or whether you just find yourself in this strange world as a result of the pandemic. Uh, And to be honest, I could have just chatted to uh, Rebecca for ages about food, but that might not have been in line with the purpose of the podcast. But I hope that what we did talk about gave you a lot of value and a lot to think about. I hope you enjoyed that visit to our archives and we'll see you again next week on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership Tips.